0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C level executives, leaders of institutions, and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics they talk? We listen. <laughs> My guest today is described as a shaper of U.S.-China relationships. She's an individual with accomplishments beyond many of us. We're going to dissect some of her achievements and at the same time celebrate the work that she's doing for our country and beyond. It's a continuation of the new series on Heads Talk today, and we're going to talk about renewable energy, electrical engineering, eco-cities and entrepreneurship. Peggy Liu, the chairperson of JUICE, is one of the leading catalysts of a green China and consults companies and governments on sustainability and cross-cultural collaboration with China. JUICE stands for Joint US-China Collaboration on Clean Energy. It is the environmental organization that has been at the heart of the greening of China since 2007. Peggy is an executive advisor, a thought leader, a distinguished professor, and a multiple board member. She has been a member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Councils on Sustainable Consumption and New Energy Architecture, and an energy advisor to the Clinton Global Initiative. Academically, Peggy is a graduate of MIT in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and completed a program, the Global Leadership and Public Policy for the 21st Century at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as well as a program at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the University of Singapore. Here is a nice quote. What we need is 100 Peggy Loo's all over the world. If that were to happen, we would be on the path to a sustainable society. This quote by Nobel Laureate Chairman of IPCC. Well, I've got the original one here today on Heads Talk. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Peggy to Heads Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Elaine, for having me. Thanks. Okay. Um, when I was doing my research on you, Peggy, I was just wowed by some of your achievements, drive, and real successes. So bravo to you for this. Um, absolutely honored again to have you on Heads to Talk today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's going to be an exciting conversation. I know it. I can feel it in my bones. Um, this episode will go into greater detail about some of your notable achievements, it nicely fits in with the new automotive series on Heads Talk, where we delve into the world of electrical solutions to meet sustainable targets. Okay, the long introduction over. Let's start with this. Um, My first question to you is, despite the the brief mention in my introduction, and without going into great detail about the achievements in Juice itself, tell my listeners about your organisation, what are you about, and what are you currently doing? So Joint U.S.-China
1: Collaboration on Clean Energy is the nonprofit that was started at a really interesting point in time in China's history in going green, and that was 2007 when China was just starting to think about clean energy. And this organization actually was birthed out of an uh, event that I held called the MIT Forum on the Future of Energy in China. It happened to be the first public dialogues between US and Chinese government officials on clean energy. Mm -hmm. And so this was really a catalyst of different actors across different disciplines to come together and say China needs to do things differently for the sake of national security, for the sake of uh, livability, for the sake of survivability at the time. And certainly in the long-term, how we are going to thrive depends on how well China and how fast China is able to go green. So joint US-China collaboration on clean energy was really a 10-year, initially a 10-year initiative (laughs) uh, to help China change the way
0: it creates and uses energy.
1: No small feat.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. That's concise, thank you for that. And let's now talk um, in greater detail about some of your achievements, incredible achievements in this space. The first one here is the smart grid. Um, you've stated that you've introduced smart grid to China in 2007, which in turn brought about a $7.2 billion initial, um, um, billion dollar initial investment by the, the state grid and thus created a roadmap for the implementation. Now China is the world leader in implementing smart grid innovations. How did this come about, and how has it changed China? Well, during
1: this event that created joint U.S.-China collaboration on clean energy, one of the co-founders on the U.S. side, who was the head of energy for the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology for George W. Bush, Mm -hmm. um, this man named Steve Papermaster, really encouraged me to take a look at this new technology, Smart Grid, and help bring it to China, and help therefore bring the U.S. technology partners to China to open up the market. This is a huge market, obviously. But at the time, China didn't even use the word smart grid. So I really had to start with a white paper, really a diagram of what components made up smart grid. What would it look like if China were to implement Smart Grid across the country, what would some of the benefits be? What would some of the first steps be? And so this became a Clinton Global Initiative commitment to do three forums on Smart Grid in China, bringing in the best of the best, uh, mainly in the US at the time. And what happened was I was able to create these bilateral forums that helped China with the US partners dream about what was possible. And they took that dream and they ran with it. Mm -hmm. And now China is the leader in implementing it.
0: There's over 500 cities that are quote unquote, smart city pilots. Mm I mean that's amazing I mean, just listening to you and it's absolutely amazing some of the stuff you're doing okay let's continue dreaming a little bit um, it would be interesting to get your vision your view of a smart sustainable city what would that look like to you and how will such a city utilize and optimize electricity.
1: Well, that's a really interesting question and it's really evolved over time so when uh juice was first started one of the first meetings we took was with the vice minister of the ministry of housing and urban rural development in china Mm -hmm. and he invited juice to create the first ever classes for mayors across country uh, across the entire country Mm -hmm. on how to build cities in an eco way in a green way Uh, in a sustainable way. And over the decade, um, really actually eight years, we trained over a thousand mayors and central government officials on what it means to be an eco-city. Now, over the course of this decade, China really developed very quickly. And so what an eco-city was and what was possible, what people dreamt of when Mm -hmm. they looked at other cities across the, the world and said, I want that in my city. That really evolved and it evolved very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. So the, at the very beginning, it was really about um, a balance of uh, clean, uh, or energy use uh, mm-hmm. and um, energy supply, demand and supply. Um, and then over time it evolved to things like eco-livable Uh, So it was really not just about survival and energy production Mm -hmm. and national security, but it evolved to livability of citizens. And now um, it's really about thrivability of everybody. So there's eradication of poverty uh, has recently been achieved in China, but this has to be equal among the cities, the urban cities, as well as the rural villages. Mm -hmm. And so um, this was a really fascinating journey, and we've learned a lot by looking at best practices from cities like New York and looking at Bryant Park for public spaces, Highline, to even Kaikoura in New Zealand for eco-heritage tourism. Uh, We looked at transportation, uh, for example, London. We looked at uh, municipal waste and water, for example, in Tokyo, or Taiwan in Seoul, Korea. So we really went around the world, we took these best practices, and we let the mayors, as they were growing their little villages into big cities, we let them dream about what their city could look like 20 years in the future. That was something that we were able to do in conjunction with the mandatory government training system that China has. It's one of, I think the only two countries that I know of that have mandatory government training Mm -hmm. every year, a minimum of 12 days a year for anybody who's in the government. Mm -hmm. So that they can harmoniously take new ideas like this, new practices, new technologies um, and Uh, 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 spread it across the country very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I'm a distinguished professor of the China Academy of Governance. It's one of the three academies that I taught these classes in.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, you you talked about the the education of over a thousand Chinese government leaders on building sustainable cities. And and apart from the 12 days a year that you mentioned as a, a compulsory, what else was involved when you provided such an education program um, to these individuals?
1: Well, again, it evolved over a decade because the style in which the government was trained really um, uh, evolved. So, at the very beginning, when we started to teach at the National Academy for Mayors of China,
0: mm-hmm. there were
1: these little wooden tables with attached mm-hmm. chairs, just like you would have, you know, yeah. a grade right. school. Oh, yeah. um, and there were There were 50 mayors in this class and we were told to create one and a half hour classes at a time. And the way that they interacted was to listen until the very end, not to ask any questions until the very end. And so you would have these really long lectures um, that weren't very interactive. And then over time, they got uh, we developed trust with these academies, and they allowed me to bring in, um, you know, foreign I- international experts to China. Mm-hmm. We did field trips. We did a lot of demos. We, mm-hmm. we did a lot of interact brainstorming that you might find in, you know, w- regular Western schools. This mm-hmm. was very unusual at the time for Chinese schooling. Um, and we made it much more interactive, and we allowed them to take a look at best practices from around the world through short form videos Mm -hmm. and then dialogue and then dream together about what their villages or cities could look like Mm -hmm. in conjunction experts that we brought to these classes. That was really cutting edge. Every single time we tweaked the format of the classes, it was really cutting edge for China at the time. And we worked hand-in-hand with the curriculum developers at these three academies that I taught at, the the National Academy for Mayors of China, the China Executive Leadership Academy of Pudong, which is in Shanghai, and the China uh, Academy of Governance, which is now merged with the party school. So these are really the heart and soul of how China is able to train its leaders and have harmonious growth on a continual basis.
0: Hmm. I sort of like the story of the beginnings of having 15 leaders, very important leaders sitting at a sort of a high school desk type, a sort of education. Yes, 50, 50 <laughs> leaders in Thank a classroom. Goodness. My goodness, <laughs> goodness, okay, okay we're still with the the dream theme or the word dream. Um, You coined the phrase China Dream. I mean, if you google it, your name is there as the initiator. Can you just tell us how that phrase and name came about? Sure. Well, number one, I want to
1: say with a caveat that China Dream has been used for a couple hundred years. It's simply that I infused this term uh, with sort of a de facto sustainable livable dream you know a beautiful lifestyle that is in harmony with nature and so really the goal at the time was after we had many successes in shifting the infrastructure of china to go green i realized that we also needed to shift the use of energy so the lifestyle of normal people had to be sustainable and yet the country that I came from, I was born and raised in in the US. This mm-hmm. was actually something that environmentalists have struggled with for decades and not really succeeded. So I said, there has to be a better way. So I scoured the world from Australia to mm-hmm. Mexico, to the US, to European countries, Norwegian uh, case studies. And I, I asked these experts, how did you succeed in getting people to switch their behavior in smoking, in use of contraceptives, mm-hmm. in uh, social norms towards, um, for example, gay marriage or what have you. And what I learned was really interesting. And the fundamental uh, main change in the, the way that I approached these movements really had to start with a change in myself. And that was to instead of just talk with numbers and statistics, because, you know, honestly, numbers numb, mm-hmm. they don't really change people's behavior. And instead of spewing fear as chicken little, which really only maybe affects a short term spurt uh, in behavior change, really we need to speak with the heart. About love, we need to make people feel loved and feel safe when we talk about a change. And so, this allowed me to then seek out people like Julian Bora, Bora in mm-hmm. London. At the time, he was the global creative director for Sachi and Sachi S. Mm-hmm. Um, and people like that helped me develop a workshop format that I then took um, across China uh, and. I slowly asked people to draw their dream in great detail. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like, smell like? Um, How do you see the future China dream when it is a livable, thriving uh, family lifestyle? Mm -hmm. And so we started to ask mayors, uh, company CEOs, real estate developers, students, professors, um, all, people from all walks of life, artists, journalists, um, all these people came together in these small workshop formats to draw as if you were James Cameron creating the avatar world, mm-hmm. draw China in the future. And then I asked them to describe this dream lifestyle with words that were effusive of love and joy and marvel and euphoria that this dream had already taken place. We were already successful, we were already satisfied. Mm -hmm. And so what what happened was we had to take a huge shift from what I was used to, which is white papers and scenario planning and spreadsheets and um, all these words like PM 2.5 and (laughs) ecological civilization and sustainability and transit oriented design. And I I moved from the head to the heart. And so this ultimately uh, became the kernel of what I'm now teaching, which is called tornado leadership. It's about looking at movements, looking at behavior change as a collective As an energetic tornado where you're magnetizing people with the heart, with joy into this vision that is very grounded with one group of people or one person's vision Mm -hmm. that grows and grows as the collective grows. And you let go of how you get there and you let go of how it evolves. You just surrender to the tornado's path as you keep spinning the tornado with little celebrations and little um, asks, micro asks that people can say yes to, and little stories that are filled with joy bubbles. And this is really what creates quantum change, the type of change that I was able to manifest in China seven times over. And each of these changes only took three years to to create. So China Dream, after having uh, a lot of momentum in government, in uh, fashion magazines, Mm -hmm. uh, journalists, with artists, with, with companies, all talking about the China dream. Mm -hmm. What happened was Tom Friedman one day came to China and I was taking him around meeting different people and he went back and he wrote about China needs to its own dream, China needs its own dream column about this program. Mm -hmm. And this got translated into Chinese and lo and behold, later that month, Xi Jinping became president and used this term in his first speech. You can call it the State of the Union for China. And this became in the following year, the second most used phrase in China, the China Dream phrase, and it became the national slogan. Of course, the first phrase was Xi Da Da, which is Uncle Xi. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> no, but you know, when you said that it started with you yourself, um... What did you change internally? And how did that process, how long did that process take?
1: Well, again, all of these big changes only took three years for China to reach a point where it was never going to go back. Mm-hmm. Right. Once the China dream became the slogan, it was never going to let go of the quote unquote China dream, which now is on billboards everywhere, subways, to um, you know, murals, to construction walls, mm. uh, to advertisements, all have nature and the harmon- harmony with harmony with nature and mm. taking care of each other starts with me. You know that type of China dream is never going to disappear. Um, so the, the 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 China dream it started with my effort to find a way to change our lifestyle to be more sustainable but again as I talked to people um, experts from around the world what I realized was I had to let go of speaking in numbers like a McKinsey Mm. consultant of which I am Um, I had to stop talking about technology is going to lead us to Uh, a better future, even though I'm an electrical engineer, computer science major from MIT. And I worked for the first half of my career, bringing up new technologies like internet technologies in Silicon Valley. I had to let go. And I really had to let go of having to be in control of the business plan. I had to really just listen to my intuition. I had to listen to the energy of the movement and where it took me. And a lot of times it was surprising, but I quote unquote, you know, you have to go with the flow. And so I learned how to trust my judgment, my my intuition a lot more than business plans and annual reports and spreadsheets and numbers. And I had to speak with my heart which was a really big change as an engineer and as somebody who, you know,
0: comes
1: in family. I'm
0: just thinking, I, I don't think I could do that. It was like, I'm like you, I'm a numbers person. I'm a sort of a facts person. So I'm, I'm really trying to work out how did you sort of just change? You said you had to change, but how did you, it's, it's like a complete personality change. I was just wondering how, how you did that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, the way that I look at it is when you're born, um, the heart is completely open. And so, over time, education and society and jobs beat us into acting more as a robot in an industrialized society. Right. So, really, it's about remembering who you really are versus changing your personality. But, you know, in my travels, I went to, for example, Hollywood. And I talked to the USC Annenberg Norman Lear Center about how they use script writing um, in TV, um, episodic television, Mm -hmm. to really change behavior. So if you think about Will and Grace, for example, that was really cutting edge in allowing social norms to be more comfortable with gay partners. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You look at the telenovelas. Where um, uh, population there's a nonprofit I think um, I think it's population PSI I believe they use the format of telenovelas um, to convince dads to let their teenage daughters in Catholic um, families to use condoms mm-hmm. um, and that was a really big break but they they portrayed the evil dad as not letting you know. <laughs> daughter pursue oh. love etc oh, so right it's, and so I, I learned from storytellers so and storytellers so, talk from the they don't talk uh, through
0: numbers so, it's, so it's, it's a form of reprogramming really isn't it i'm still sort of science space in my head sorry but it's, it's also a sort of form of reprogramming what you're talking about right remembering
1: what your true programming is I would say yes
0: okay okay I I will leave it there I'll leave it there and move on to the the next question but the fascinating indeed and now let's look at some of your awards that you've received um, over a number of years for for your work your innovation and and the role that you played in the development of a sustainable ecosystem perhaps you'd like to just select three and give my listeners an understanding of the reward or recognition itself and how you obtained it
1: well, you know, my first book that I wrote is called Mesmerize the Media. And one of the things that I teach about how to use media to amplify your cause, I talk about keystone media. Mm-hmm. And these are the media that aren't just something that you hang on your wall, but it, it creates a ripple effect. And one of the first um, pieces of media that was definitely a keystone for me, key milestone, is the Time Hero of the Environment Award. Uh, that led me to become a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, and uh, that year just a whole bunch of different um, awards rolled in because they, they all looked this list, yeah. um, and then they sort of automatically include you in other things. Yeah. Um, so that one um, is something that people still mention even though that was I believe in 2008 they still mention it when they introduced yeah. me on stage.
0: Not everyone has achieved something like that, <laughs> so I can understand that that's one of the first things <laughs> I saw when I uh, you know did some research on me. was a time magazine hero of the environment so there you go.
1: Yeah, I guess everybody knows Time, and it's funny because one of my friends, he keeps telling everybody, oh, she was on the cover of Time magazine, and it really was just my name with other people's names on it, on the cover of Time, but it, you know, it's one of those things that people know about, and, and um, uh, you know, really that will stick with me forever as a, as a key moment that helps create the tornado of juice, the 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 momentum of juice to allow us to amplify our cause of China going green. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say a second award is really the Hillary Institute. So anybody who's familiar with Edmund Hillary, who climbed Mount Everest early on, knows that he's sort of an icon in New Zealand. And uh, this institute is uh, um, designates awards um, Mm -hmm. one year to a Hillary laureate, so one person who they deem to have done the most uh, to help climate change solutions. Mm -hmm. And so I won the Hillary laureate. I I think I was the second person to win that award. And then every four years they give a Hillary step, which is sort of the Nobel prize for climate solutions. And I was the first to win that award. And and because of that, I'm now a governor or like Mm -hmm. a board member of the Hillary Institute. So people like Christiana Figueres, uh, Johan Rockstrom have won uh, those Hillary laureates as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say that that was, um, a a really, I I think proud moment for me because I love hiking and I really, really love the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, you know, Hillary, Sir Hillary is just, um, an icon. And then I would say maybe a third one, um, you know, this isn't an award as much as it was something that they, they advertised for, um, a keynote that I did for The Economist, but The Economist once called me uh, one of the most innovative thinkers in Asia. And I I, honestly, I was a a little astounded when they said that and maybe it was over eager advertising for my keynote. I'm not sure, but
0: (laughs) I'll take it. You need to hear congratulations on that. So (laughs) take it, please.
1: Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, honestly, the, the tornado really swept me up a little bit like Dorothy from Kansas into Oz and the, the types of awards, recognitions I've, I've gotten, honestly, I could not even imagine when I was studying um, EECS at MIT, I, I couldn't, Imagine that one day I would be like a centerfold in September Vogue for China. That that w- that just blew my mind, right? <laughs> I couldn't imagine that somebody would ask me to be in a sort of Chinese Dancing with the Stars to to do swing, <laughs> dance. you know. So I'm going to say that those are equally, um, you know, yep. <laughs> big milestones are, as the are,
0: other. <laughs> no, those are fantastic, and, and for my listeners, with the Hillary Lloyd, that was in 2010. Um, the Hillary Clinton um, climate change was in 2012. Oh, okay, thank you. Yep. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> so, listeners just <laughs> easy, want to find out more about it. And and also for my listeners, there are more um, awards. I'm not gonna ask um, Peggy to list them, but I will. <laughs> um, it's the Forbes um, Women to Watch in Asia. That was in 2010. You, on, another one was a Huffington, Huffington Post greatest person of the day in 2011 (laughs) that's an interesting one (laughs) just today surely a bit longer than that come on okay and there's another one which was you were honored as a world economic forum young global leader i haven't got the year for that but i i'm sure i think
1: it was 2009 i think it was 2009 okay and i guess i'm i'm also really proud of foreign policies I think they called me a, a shaper, shaper of U.S.-China US-
0: China relations, yes, that's right, the, yes, yeah. Slowly, yeah, that's 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 not a small achievement, and another one is one of China's top 50 innovative business leaders by China Business News Weekly, that was in 2012, um, you had the Shanghai Excellence Award in 2014, and you, you know, there's numerous um, covers, oh, oh, goodness. I was, was hoping China. you
1: and keep, keep listing more, but um, I, I think that you know what. What's interesting about these awards, really, the importance is not um, the award itself, but the when we get them every single time, it's like a micro celebration that adds juice yes. to the tornado of juice, so to speak. Yes. Yes. Um, and so, I'm a really big believer that if you want to to, um, get sustainable change, you need to learn how to listen to the energetics of building a movement in a positive way, looking forward backwards. So Mm -hmm. um, dreaming the future versus protesting the past. Mm -hmm. And this way we're working through emergence rather than reacting to emergency. And so each of these awards really was um, really a reflection from the external world, that juice was being successful in creating larger and larger tornado, increasing the angular momentum of this tornado towards a greener China.
0: It's, it's, a, it's an appreciation for what you, stroke juice, is doing. So, you know, that's great. And just to, to, to finish off on that, you, you've been in the Chinese press and magazines and publications to include. The Global Times, Beijing, Now you mentioned Vogue, and The Guardian. So that's for my listeners, you know, it, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, okay, it, it goes without saying that um, China has quickly adapted to the electric revolution. Its electric cars are in abundance. The buses have been 90% converted to EVs and a year ahead of schedules in some cases in cities. What is the key to its success quick adoption? What is the key to a successful quick adoption? And what can others around the globe learn from China? And interestingly, and later in your answer, what were the pain points in this transition? Well,
1: you know, it's really all about having enough capital early on to experiment. And so what China did right was early on for a duration of five years, put um, a tremendous amount of subsidies, both at a central level and a local level, um, and it, it created physical space for hundreds of companies to come in and start to create models mm-hmm. of EVs. And so all of a sudden, from nothing, a few years later, literally a handful of years later, because the national a five-year plan really encouraged this, um, you know, you started to see really cool designs and really cool, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like going to the Jetsons, right? All of a sudden the Jetson future, Uh, is seemingly a reality in China. So number one, the five-year plan, which is sort of the business plan for the entire country, really promoted it. It backed it up with money, and then local governments backed it up with uh, physical land and more subsidies. And so one of one of the interesting things about China that I think is really the key to its success is its emphasis on logistics, you know, infrastructure, transportation. Everything really takes into account transit-oriented design. And that's why we have the high-speed rail, the subway system that we have, and now the, uh, the uh, Belt and Road. Um, so the EV phenomena got a huge kick. It's, it's as if the you know EV industry got shot out of a, of a cannon. Now, during this five-year period, though, there was a lot of people trying to play the game, right, game the game, so to speak. And what happened was at, at the end of this uh, subsidy term, uh, a lot of, um, I think, bad players came to light. And so a lot of these car companies just uh, went to nothing. Um, a lot of people, executives, left in shame. Um, there were you know, definitely some criminal activity there, which the government quickly stamped down. Mm-hmm. However, now, um, I was just telling a friend of mine that China will be the first country, and I predict within 10 years, you're going to see most of the new roads and refurbished roads to have built-in sensors, for self-driving, shareable EVs, uh, electric vehicles. And when I mean electric vehicles, they could be buses, like you mentioned, municipal buses, but they can also be low-speed electric vehicles, LSEVs for like 7,000 US dollars each, little tiny cute cars that are now prolific uh, in China and now spreading to Africa. They can definitely be um, sort of two-wheel vehicles, um, I guess you might call them motorcycles or uh, scooters, etc., cetera. Um, and also in ports, so sh- uh, shipping ports will have a lot of these electric vehicles as well and charging through the actual ground itself. And so that is going to make the actual cars lighter And more nimble because you're not just relying on batteries in the car or you're just relying on sensors in the car. And so this is going to really, I think, lead the future of the world in how transportation looks. And and all of this, remember, is tied to transit-centered living, what urban planners call transit-oriented design, meaning that all the cities are built around hubs around the the subway stops, the high-speed rail stops, um, and so whenever you have a stop, a metro stop, you will have uh, huge skyscrapers right on top that are mixed use, so residential, commercial buildings, retail, um, schools, hospitals, all within walk, you know, fifteen minutes of walking distance, and that's that's a model that actually uh, London does really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Shanghai, we have five hundred meters between each stop, which is really walkable. Um, And then of course you have the shared bike system also, and then you have the equivalent of an Uber or Lyft called Didi, um, and that's prolific as well. So transportation is becoming really, really convenient as well as uh, sustainable and uh, city friendly. And it just helps with the flow. It reduces traffic, and everybody is happier.
0: Mm. So that's, that's giving me quite a, a very interesting vision and view of how things are going to be. Um, out of curiosity, have you got an electric car? I don't. I haven't owned a car since I moved to China in 2004 because it's just
1: not necessary. I actually live in the center of Shanghai, mm-hmm. and I live on top of three subway lines. Mm -hmm. So three subway lines intersect underneath my feet. So when I want to go to one of the two international airports, all I have to do is go down to the elevator, 29 stories, and then go down one more story to, to line two. And I go one direction, it goes to Pudong International Airport. I go the other way, it goes to the Hongqiao International Airport. One more stop, it goes to the high-speed rail uh, station and, and then I can really go anywhere uh, mm-hmm. so uh, honestly there's no need yeah. a lot of stuff is within walking distance um, and then there's the you know one quai per hour which is like nothing to rent a, a shared bike yes. and then I could pop it off anywhere really anywhere there's but there's bike uh, parks everywhere and then if I really want to then I'll just call uh, the equivalent of an Uber or Lyft um and they're at my doorstep within 15 minutes
0: so uh, no, it's that, just that's, so understandable. that's understandable i think i think a lot of people that live in many of the big cities london included are um, shifting away from uh, owning a car to the public transport as the public transport gets better and greener then it's easier for them to, to make that decision i sort of imagine you having an electric car and actually redesigning it while you're using it and sort of pulling out all the points that's wrong with it and all the stuff that's good with it i just sort of pictured that that's why that question came into my head to ask you that well you know
1: the other thing i want to point out is electric cars are so cool now that it, in the mall next door to me
0: which is one of the
1: newest fanciest malls in shanghai mm-hmm. uh tai hu hui there's both a tesla uh, um, showroom and a nio, N-I-O Electric car showroom, which is, I say, even cooler design than Tesla. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: So it's it's now the norm. Sorry, want EV. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I interrupted you. I apologize for that. What was what was your last statement?
1: Well, it's it's just um, the future. The young people really, if they want to own a car, they're going to want something electric. And uh, nowadays, you can also start to pilot self-driving electric um,
0: taxis. Yeah. This is the future. That's the future. So, yeah. so why, why, why do you consider the, Nilo, the NIO sorry cooler than the Tesla? Well, you have to take a look at some of these pictures. So one
1: of the earlier models, um, if you look at it, because it's um, also self, supposed to be self-driving, I believe you can actually face the four seats towards each other. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? So and then there's this huge sky roof. It just it's just really really sexy and cool. So you just take a, take a look at their website and they have these um you know I guess the Harley Davidson of EVs except I think. It looks just faster and cooler and more Jetsons, and so take a look at their website. It's it's actually a global company. Shanghai is one of their locations, um, just like Tesla. One of their factory locations is in Shanghai, but really the designers may be in Germany, and then there's people in Silicon Valley. So it's just you know the norm that nothing is only designed and produced in one country
0: uh, and only for one. Uh,
1: demographic.
0: well that's the future I, I think indeed okay let's end this episode on, on this question it would be great if the answer is an exclusive for heads talk we live in hope um, what is there left for Peggy Lou to do what exciting plans do you have in the near future well
1: if if I can sort of weave two of them together one is I I'm writing a book as I mentioned uh, on tornado leadership. And this will ha- be chock full of really concrete ways that you can lead your organization, your meetings, your community, your families, any collective really, um, to, to make quantum leaps into a better future faster. And we're, we're using this knowledge in communities right now, like the nation of Hawaii, mm-hmm. which is actually a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. And Bill Clinton actually wrote a letter of apology and designated 45 acres to the sovereign nation on the island of Oahu. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working very closely with the head of state and the deputy head of state to change the way that they look at the past, to release ancestral trauma and to dream about the future and how to magnetize people into their tornado, which is called the Ahupua'a, ecosystem, the shared stewardship of natural abundance, which was alive and thriving and well before the colonialists uh, took over Hawaii in the 1700s. Mm -hmm. And so this this, um, is one example of uh, the type of work that I want to do for the rest of my life, which is to take what I've learned about how to do quantum countrywide changes in China and then bring them to the community level all around the world, mm-hmm. and so I, if you're interested in spending some time in Hawaii, if you're interested in learning how to make quantum leaps for your company or your community, your uh, country, just you know, look me up. I'm Shanghai Peggy on most social media, and um, I am teaching now these courses. I'm just starting to teach these courses right now. I'm in LA and I'm teaching how to create with your future self with a man named Brian, the healer. And so this is creating with your internal self. As we said, we have to change ourselves in order to change the world Mm -hmm. as so many masters have said. And and so this this is all related to bringing in a better future faster at the micro level and the macro levels. So I invite you Elaine and all of your listeners to join me in um, really storing and shepherding this knowledge to all the people who are going to bring in the future, especially women like you, Mm -hmm. who are birthing these new world ideas Mm -hmm. and the children who are responsible for building the new world.
0: Okay, and when this book is complete, um, do let me know and I will add a link to it in your episode description and um, i think that will be great if people do continue listening to your episode when it's done they will have that link to go to your book um peggy Lou, delighted to have you here today on Heads talk many thanks for your time and insights
1: thank you so much elaine for having me and i hope all of your uh, listeners have learned one new thing about
0: china that's fantastic i'm sure they have Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.